0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to Wealth Actually. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm here again with Haven Pell, who is the pundificator on social media networks and on his blog. Today we are going to talk about a little bit of Twitter and internet culture as it relates to what's seemed to be a bit more of a recent phenomenon which is fanboys and haters and how the world is sort of devolved into a scenario where you're either all or nothing as it relates to a topic and how that's really starting to cause a problem with the discourse and in the way things are analyzed and put forward in the media. Haven, where have you been on, on this type of thing? When you're running around doing research and looking at stuff, how have you seen the different avenues of discourse sort of falling apart here? And maybe to go back to it a little bit, we both came upon an essay which talked about this a little bit.
1: At first, I think to start off, neither I nor the Pundificator is nearly famous enough to have either fanboys or haters. So, I looked at it more from the perspective of things like politics and so forth, which I had spent a good deal of time writing about. And I encountered an essay that was written by Paul Graham, the creator of Y Combinator. And the essay was either written for or rewritten in a newsletter called Farnham Street, which appears to be part of something else called the Knowledge Project. And it's sort of tagline is no spam, no politics, no BS, and that's a pretty good start. They also have a rather interesting pricing model. It's either $149 a year or $249 a year, and they are bold to say that it is for entirely the same product. Some people just like it enough to pay an extra 100 Thus far, I have not joined the Knowledge Project. Maybe I should, but I have listened to several of the podcasts that are hosted by a Canadian interviewer called Shane Parrish, and I read their weekly newsletter. And sometimes I don't read every item that they put in the newsletter, but this one struck me. And it struck me, I think, because I'm not a fan of the word hater. And it seems to me to be overused and a little bit cowardly. Oh, he's just a hater. And that encompasses people who may have a valid point of view. But this essay doesn't use the word hater in quite that way. And so I thought it was interesting and was glad to share it and glad we're talking about it. So as I sort of tool around the Twitter world, many times
0: I sort of engage with people on financial topics, wealth management topics, et cetera. And one thing that I've noticed, especially as business models are gravitating toward the concept of building a marketing or media presence, letting that be the glow that one presents to the market, and then having people become fans before they actually become prospects or clients, that it's created a a schism. Uh, you have people who really enjoy it, want to bask in the reflected light of said glow, and then other people who kind of look at it and start getting very precise and angular as it relates to criticizing what they do and what they don't do and you know it's sort of you know, sort of borrowing from people who follow Star Wars and science fiction and comic books and other areas that I follow too where you have people who are fanboys who will almost blindly accept certain things but then revolt very quickly if they go against what the standard canon looks like and then you have haters who just hate everything unless it is a complete upheaval of the current system And I've noticed that it is becoming acute in this financial Twitter world where there are people who are very quick adopters and very enthusiastic cheerleaders. And then there are the disaffected and the haters who there's no convincing them. Have you seen it in the political world or are you seeing it in other spots?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I I think it is the political world. I'm not sure that there's (laughs) I'm not sure there's anything else to see. I've always, or at least for the last several years, have thought it was manufactured and that the people want absolutely not only to create fanboys for their side, but they're really happy to create haters of their side because it creates more attention. And it's just having your name mentioned more often. And I don't find it particularly helpful to solving any problems, but it is an interesting phenomenon. And it appears to me, it it appears to me that both sides do it. You have one side that will call, you know, that will use the famous deplorables phrase and the other side that uses words like globalist and uses them equally pejoratively. So I think it's definitely true in in politics, but there's a, a piece of it that makes, that I'd love to ask you a question about that relates to your, to the finance stuff. And one of the things that is controversial is do presidents create good markets or slash good economies, the two being different? And when one's own team appears to be in office and the market is going up, then, clearly, this was entirely created by that President. If the market is going down, curiously, it has the president had no role in that at all, if you're on his side, and the two are entirely reversed for the other side of the political divide. Do you follow that sort of thing in Twitter? and do you do you try to give the sort of investment management wisdom that, if I recall it correctly, is, The president actually doesn't have that much of an effect on that. So I'll give you my
0: personal bias on that first, which is I equate presidents to the economy or the markets, uh, the way I equate head coaches to pro football success or college football success. They have an impact. They establish a culture. There are certain tactical things that may have various impacts on one thing or the other. But ultimately, they get far more credit in victory than they deserve, and they get far more blame and defeat than they deserve. You still have a whole bunch of very important factors, namely the players on the team, the market world, all sorts of different things from how companies are doing, market conditions, natural disasters, all sorts of things. All of that is part of the witch's brew in terms of success. But ultimately, the head coach and or the president, really their job as it relates to the markets, in my humble opinion, is to establish a culture under which you have the stability to rely on conditions to make sort of allocation decisions and also, that there is a framework with which the private sector deals with the public sector and vice versa, and that there's a sort of sense of either fairness or lay a fair components to how the population is dealt with as it relates to social services and healthcare and things like that ultimately all that that's what the head coach or the president is really sort of responsible for and when they make sort of unilateral decisions or very high profile very precise decisions around certain things i view that as as it can be important informative or indicia of overall attitude but many times it doesn't make or break the game or even the trajectory of the game that all being said, I think if you sort of look at the media attention, you have sort of two two components that I think are interesting. One is the sort of financial media complex, and you know I would put Barron's and Bloomberg and CNN, or excuse me, CNN, MSNBC, MSNBC all those types of things in it, where they they need to generate ratings based on very targeted pointed views around certain things, namely particular stocks or securities. That translates over to Twitter and social media as well, where I think the world is still trying to digest what what the impact of Twitter is on various markets. I think it's still somewhat slight. But then you get the intersection with the political world where we really are in a new age, I think, where Donald Trump is using Twitter and other social media to disintermediate the political industrial class. And you sort of look at that and say, OK, what what effects of the markets does he have when he tweets certain things? And I think we're in a weird phase right now I, to start, you know, bas- when he got elected, it was a completely interesting part where I think this time it is different. I equate it to when Nixon and JFK went on TV for the first time for their debate and presidential politics and politics in general were forever changed. The most handsome guy won. telegenics were important now. deliveries important. Ideas, theoretically, less important. And then Trump, in you know, a sort of going past the media to get his message to the people, I think is different now. And I think that we're going to be studying his component on that more than anything in 10 to 20 years. And I think how that impacts the markets the first three years plus of his administration, I think the first year or two, people just started to digest what it meant for a president to have that kind of power over the media and use of the media to put into his agenda what he thinks is important and the economic ramifications. All that being said, I think the markets... Are in the process of learning what a new news cycle looks like as it relates to presidential impacts on that and what a tweet does to the markets. I think anecdotally the markets are digesting that information and those pivots more and more and more and more quickly so that it's not such a surprise in the in the Impacts are not as severe. Again, this is early days, and it'll be interesting to see whom the next president, whether it's this election cycle or the next, whether understanding that power and the power of the markets that can happen with either knee-jerk tweets or
1: uh, other forms of communication, whether that changes anything. I've been trying to make myself remember, almost by like tying a string around my finger, an early point that you made, because I think you actually provided a solution that I had not seen for years of discussing the impact of the president on the markets. By using the analogy of a head coach, you solve the lag time problem. So many stories are, you know, we'll look at the market from the inauguration day until today, or until the next election, or until whatever. And it imagines that the new president's policies immediately went into effect at the moment that he took office, and they ended the moment the next person took office. And that's obviously silly. But your analogy to the head coach, I think, is extremely helpful, because it does allow for the lag time. Nobody expects a new head coach, particularly on a team that may not have been performing terribly well, to have an immediate impact. You expect his impact to take place over time and indeed maybe to last into the tenure of the next coach. And that takes away a sort of a endpoint sensitivity problem that I, I must say I used it. I used endpoint sensitivity in terms of trying to refute people who took the view that presidents were responsible for stock markets. And so I would use that argument, but I think yours is better because you do understand the analogy, uh, the the image that it takes a hedge coach some time to establish that culture And to cause things to move in a proper direction. I'll bet I could get a lot of people to agree with that.
0: Well, and I think you can go to the the next extent is typically you change head coaches when things blow up or things are bad. And so the Giants have had three losing records. They gave Pat Shermer two seasons, didn't work out. They're going in a different direction. Most people would say, okay, so you're similar to politics. You vote people out because they didn't do a good job. We do have a weird thing, though, called term limits in the presidential world where you only get two terms. And so sometimes, you know, the, you may go from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat, or you may go from same party to same party. And I think there there are analogies in head coaching where whether are both college and pro where there are successful coaches that retired. And I start, I, 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 you know, I sort of think about that as it relates to the 49ers when Bill Walsh retired and left George Seifert with a very full cupboard and a culture with which Seifert had worked in and it was continuing. And the 49ers had a great deal of success under Seifert. I think they won. I can't remember offhand, but I think they won the next Super Bowl similarly. And then another interesting job was when Jimmy Johnson was the coach of the Cowboys and then he quit to go on to do something else. And then Barry Switzer came on board. And so they won a Super Bowl under Switzer. And so it goes to show that if you've got the players and you've got the culture and you haven't had that much change and you know maybe certain and people stayed consistent, that things can continue to succeed beyond just the switch in person who's running things. And I think that analogy, I mean, it's simplistic to be sure, but I think that traces to presidents and markets. I think you've got, let's call it the successful transition, say from Reagan to Bush, that's an interesting one because the stock market was starting to do pretty well and the economy was finally chugging under Reagan. By the time he left, George Bush came on and had a couple of successful years and then it went south on him and he was ultimately voted out. And it couldn't be Because his policies and culture were any different. It just sort of ran its course. And, you know, I look at that and say, you know, it it was kind of him. He got a little bit unlucky, not unlike if you had a star player either get injured or retire at the wrong time. But then you look at somebody like Clinton where he had two terms. He inherited maybe good underlying conditions that just weren't reflected well yet. And was able to turn that into good things with his different culture. And by the time he ran his course, he was term limited out. But then there was a different type of change that went in. There's got to be some good paper in here somewhere or a long form essay to kind of think about these types of things. Even when you go back in time,
1: I, I think that the analogies are there. It's interesting, sort of, to go back to the original concept, let's imagine that there is, that the analogy is there, and let's say that you could empirically show it in in a mathematically logical way. I still think you would run into the problem of fanboys and haters, and you could have a thousand brilliant investment managers saying that this is a great essay, this is absolutely true, this is the impact, we've nailed it, and so forth. But there would be political people who, if it didn't go in the direction of their preferred narrative, they would become haters. And if their guy isn't at the wheel, then no amount of research will make it true. They are simply haters, according to this this essay. At the same time, there are people who are on the incumbent side who would say, That anything that their guy at the wheel was doing was clearly wonderful. And if he was experiencing a bad market, they would say, well, the study is wrong.
0: The best part about it is no one's right. You can pick out the facts you want. You can pick out the personnel you want to support whatever view you have. I'm a Redskin fan, so I've been bereft for the last 25 years. We've got, we seem to have culture problems beyond just head coaches. But I look at sort of the Belichick Brady component, and the two are tied at the hip through their whole experience and success with the Patriots. And you can't divorce one from the other in terms of analyzing the success. And when you try to, you, you pick out certain facts and, you know, there are different wide receivers here and different offenses here and different assistant coaches here. I mean, ultimately you can pick it out whatever you want to prove or disprove. And that's what makes their current situation so interesting because Brady's a free agent now and Belichick is kind of in the autumn of his coaching career. And, and I, I think both of them are interested as part of their legacies to establish whether they themselves could be sort of attributed the winning elixir and the sort of pivot point for the patriot's success. I think that's a little bit what underpins sort of Trump's narrative on certain things. I think he wants he has an insatiable hunger for credit and I think he looks at it and says, "You know, I I, I want to be the one to dictate fed policy. I want to be the one to dictate trade policy. I want to be the one to dictate this that and the other thing and I'm the one that's I'm the one that's causing good things to happen and good statistics to occur. For people who believe in that, he provides enough data points for you to grab onto and quote unquote prove your point at a cocktail party. And for those people who don't believe that, there are so many different things that you can point to going back to Obama or things that are occurring sort of separate and apart from presidential policy. And it'll be interesting to see how the legacy fills out. I don't take it as a given that the stock market's going to have these, these sort of steady increases over time and that everyone's going to benefit. And you know, it might be the type of thing that maybe George Bush had happened to him where the markets turned against him late in the presidential cycle, and it was difficult for him to, to sort of veer away from that.
1: If the dot-com bubble had burst a year or two earlier, then it would have changed the entire narrative about Bill Clinton. He enjoyed a period of time in which people were obsessed with tech stocks and so forth, and eventually they got too high. And sure enough, down they went in the early 2000s. But by then, he was no longer at the wheel. It'd be interesting to do much like what people endeavor to do when they're trying to figure out why things went well in stocks. They do a performance attribution, and they said, well, this did well because all large cap stocks did well, or all value stocks did well, or whatever. And so they will sort of slice up the reason for the performance of a particular investment and come up with some sort of a credible answer, which I guess people believe. And you could do the same thing. It kind of would be interesting to see if there is a money ball for politics. See whether Michael Lewis and the view about data and analytics and so forth could explain more about the importance of the person in the Oval Office or holding one house, one part of Congress or the other, or whatever it might be. It'd be interesting to see if you could create some sort of giant performance attribution.
0: I seem to think Lewis has written about politics a little bit. I can't remember it, so I'm really flying blind here. But Bill Clinton certainly understood that. I mean, with his quote, it's the economy, stupid. And he didn't have the data to support it necessarily. But I think he he understood that when people do well, they want to continue to do well. And, and most people, especially in this day and age, look at that based on their bank balances, their 401k balances, discretionary income, et cetera. And Trump understands this too, that if he has a strong stock market, and if wages seem to be increasing or if he's able to improve wages for minorities by some measure, that that is it. That is the biggest thing, assuming assuming the country is fairly safe and he can prove that somehow. But ultimately, those bank balances are it. Now, the question, I think the other money ball question, and I think the one that really has been challenged over the last certainly last few years, is the impact of political donations on political success. Pretty much used to be that if you raised significantly more money than the next guy, you know, absent some sort of crazy sort of personal problem or general failing, that you had a significant advantage. Trump, he was outspent by a significant factor in the presidential race, and he was outspent in the primary season as well. And I think that is an interesting part, too. I don't really ascribe any sort of, I put in air quotes, genius to Trump's component, but I think that... His people really just understood the playbook better and you know when you're not equipped with the gift of shame, as they say in the Simpsons, and not showing up in New York and California because you don't feel like you need it and you can focus on a couple of spots where ten or fifteen thousand votes mean the difference, he operated that way. And he also understood that the fulcrum issue is whether he's able to deliver it or not. If your bank balances look better after after I'm done, I'm gonna be received well and have a
1: better chance at that re-election. He is certainly trumpeting those achievements. And I think that it's, it's hard for me to say why that would not be true. I can't think of an argument that I would make in opposition to what you just said. You know, if people feel better off, they're going to sort of leave things as they are.
0: Well, and it gets back into self-interest in voting. And that means different things to different people. For some people, self-interest in voting revolves around social issues that they want promoted, whether it's the environment or social justice or that type of thing. And Trump is probably not your man on those issues by and large. But is that really the majority of the country? And I think that that's up for debate amongst political scientists, political consultants, that type of thing. When Trump can point to the stock market being up 30% last year. People say, well, that's, that's pretty good. And, and if they were part of that, then there's some sort of connection established between the voter, between the culture that was established and the results. Whether that's deserved or not, that's the Michael Lewis part that you're talking about, which is how do you attribute that success? And I think the the, the short answer is, it's difficult to do and I'm sort of brainstorming here on the fly here it, it gets back to something we've talked about in previous podcasts which was you know the the concept of the president taking over the the function of the federal reserve and using that that to me is a dangerous a dangerous thing and I'm I'm a little worried about that personally uh, just to say that you know that now that the president has and I should say the office of the presidency has discovered the power of lowering interest rates and using liquidity, it's going to take a very enlightened leader going forward to put the genie back in the bottle on that, especially ones that aren't steeped in economics, not only fiscal and monetary policy, but how that all weaves together, which is itself up for debate most of the time. I look at that and say, you're asking a president to be commander in chief and all this other stuff. And now chief economist, that is scary. And I think that's an area where, and I'm not saying Trump is the one doing all this, but you pull the wrong lever that can have a dramatic
1: impact. It's probably an area in which it's great if it happens naturally and not necessarily quite so great if you go out of your way to make it happen so if you are the beneficiary of good conditions wonderful but if you set out to manipulate things so that those good conditions happen because you know you would benefit from them that is far less wonderful because it does create the possibility of hugely inflated asset prices the economist this week has a special section and it's their first leader in their cover on how much we have messed up housing and that we are all wrong about the importance of home ownership. And we have encouraged home ownership forever and ever and ever. And it came a cropper in 2008 when we said, whoa, boy, somebody, you know, maybe you could just tweak four more percentage points of homeowners and you suddenly started. Making bad loans and we all remember what happened.
0: Right. I completely agree. And and again, this is this is a bit like the boiled frog. It's not going to be a sudden jack things up two percent or something like that. It's going to be done incrementally and it's going to be difficult to see the impacts of things until until it's too late. And that that ultimately it's difficult. We're asking the head coach, as it were, to not only sort of generate the strategy and the culture for the team, but also throw and catch the pass, too. And I think that's where that's the slippery slope here. And that that's something to sort of keep an eye on and
1: be concerned about. Definitely. And I guess to return for a moment to haters and fanboys, no matter what the person does, there will always be a group of people who are guided or choose to dislike it and another group of people that will either be guided to or will choose to just love it no matter what's going on. And they will simply say this word, in this case either Democrat or Republican, is a good word and the other word is just a bad word and they're obsessed with it. And to me it makes it it makes the politics far less interesting there's no particular rigor in terms of thinking through a particular question. It's just if you are a Democrat, then it is this. If you are a Republican, then it is that. And I use my own experience as a guide here.
0: I'm a Redskins fan. Watched a lot of success early in life, which was really sort of in the '80s and early '90s, and it's it's been pretty barren since then. But I am a fanboy. I will be a Redskins fan until they put me in the ground. And. But I can't look at it with a critical eye or maybe that's not true. I can look at it with a critical eye and I complain, but I continue to be a fan, which I would sort of analogize to being a Republican or a Democrat. And even if they keep making misstep after misstep and doing dingbat things after dingbat things, they're still my dingbats. (laughs) And so I continue along that line whether it's completely logical or not and by the extension uh, the, you know, the hater component i mean i'm a i'm not a fan of the giants or the cowboys for the same reasons if you're a redskin fan you can't you can't be that and i can find reasons to loathe the cowboys giants and eagles cuz they're in the same conference and i can't be convinced otherwise
1: i think you've probably given a pretty good preview of every day between january of 2020 And November of 2020, I think you just, in about one sentence, you just took care of it.
0: Well, great. Well, this has been fun. Let's, Let's end here because I think we would veer off and probably exhaust 15 other podcast topics. But again, another pleasurable conversation and I hope our listeners enjoyed it.
1: Thank you very much, Fraser. I enjoyed being with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.